Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. What do you want for your birthday? Birth hmm? What did you say? Good health. Good health. Oh, not a bad request. Um, I wonder if you still get asked that question. Aled, if we can just to demonstrate. In case you're wondering what birthdays are, that might help you. Um, I wonder if you still get asked that question. I hope you do. I hope there's still people in your life who think it's worth getting you a gift, but also are concerned to know what it is that you want or what it is that you need. My guess is, though, that how you answer that question, what you want for your birthday, depends on who's asking it. It depends on how you view the person who's asking you that question. For example, if it is your parents asking you that question, probably the answer that you give is going to be at the, the top end of the price range of your entire kind of sphere spectrum of gifts, isn't it? If it's another, let's just say, older relative, it's going to be a sensible gift. It's not going to be one of the silly things or the things that is going to be difficult to explain. It's just going to be a nice, sensible gift. If it's, say, in the next three weeks and it's a member of your congregation who's asking you what you want for your birthday, um, obviously the answer would be a very spiritual gift from your list. But different people, do do you see what I mean? Different people... Uh, kind of provoke a different response from us to a a similar, simple question. What do you want for your birthday? It totally and utterly depends on your relationship with that person, how you view that person, how you answer the question. Now, let's ask a different question. Not what you want for your birthday, but what do you want me to do for you? Okay, if it was me asking you that question, for example depending on our relationships and what you know about me, again, the answers could be really, really different. Throughout Mark's gospel, as we've been working our way through this account, this life of Jesus, we've been trying to see and understand exactly who Jesus is. And now, where we stand, where we sit today, depending on how we view him, we will each answer that question for ourselves quite differently. If Jesus were to ask us that question, what do you want me to do for you? Depending on how we view him, how we relate to him, our responses will be very different. Uh, John read a selection of passages to us from chapters 8, chapters 9, chapters 10 of Mark's gospel. We're in another passage again, right at the end of Mark's gospel today, and we encounter two different groups, or a group and an individual. And you'll see that they both get asked the same question by Jesus. They answer in two very different ways. And I think that shows us massively how they view Jesus, what they think Jesus is all about in their own eyes. We'll be in Mark chapter 10, and we'll be picking it up from verse 35. Uh, The verses I'll read will come up on the screen. So if you want to pay attention that way, that's fine. If you want to be in your Bibles, it's Mark chapter 10. We'll start off at verse 35. Um, I'll be selecting which parts I read, so you may have to skip around with me. This is how we begin. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. 
Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Then down a little bit further. Then they came to Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Let's have a look at this scene by scene then. And the first scene is James and John. Um, We've encountered James and John already. We've seen their names in Mark's accounts. They are privileged people, aren't they? They are people who have spent a significant amount of time near Jesus. They've been instructed personally by Jesus. They've, they've witnessed his miracles. Everything that Jesus has basically done in Mark's gospel, they've been there, front and center. You couldn't get anybody really who was closer than this pair. They'd been there when Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus was the one who was going to come and rescue. They'd heard Jesus explaining about his death and his resurrection. But before we even come to Jesus asking them the question that I want to be on our minds this morning, what can I do for you or what do you want me to do for you? They come to Jesus and, well, look at what they ask Jesus. Promise to do for us whatever we ask. Can you think of any scenarios in your life where that situation happens, where someone comes to you and they're trying to manipulate your answer even before you've given it? The closest I could come was when someone approaches you and opens with these words, promise you won't be mad. You know the situation, don't you? They're going to say something which should rightly be rage-inducing, But they want to manipulate you into a situation where when the truth comes out, you can't do anything. And that's what they're trying to do. They come to Jesus, this one that they've been with, the one that they know, they've seen, they've witnessed. Apparently, they agree with is is there going to be the rescuer, the ruler, the king, all of these things. And they come with this manipulative way of asking, promise to do whatever we ask, won't you? before we ask it, because there's a sense in our minds that you might actually end up saying no. 
Why else would they approach Jesus like this? If they ask like this, they think, boom, we've got him. And what's on our hearts, what's in our minds is definitely ours. Already, alarm bells are ringing, aren't they? When we were reading through that passage, alarm bells were ringing because it's just such a manipulative, awkward way of approaching it. But Jesus doesn't agree or disagree to this request. He simply comes up and he asks the question, well, what is it that you want me to do for you? I wonder why it was at this point they chose to ask Jesus what they did. Had they understood something that Jesus had been describing of his suffering and his death? And at this moment they think, do you know what? We've not got a lot of time left with our master, so we better ask the question now, early, before it's too late. Maybe. Or, maybe... They have this whole uh, king, messiah, ruler, rescuer kind of imagery in their head. And they recognize that as they're about to get to Jerusalem, that's all going to kick off. And so they want to just make sure before he gets on his throne, it's all sorted out nice and neatly who's going to be seated where. It doesn't really matter why. But it's interesting that they ask that question nonetheless. In either case... Their response really does show us something of how they view Jesus. Do you think they view Jesus as a genie? As someone whose only role and responsibility is to grant their deepest wishes? I think the way that they answer Jesus here shows that they don't so much view him as a savior or as a lord or as a messiah but as a slave who should do their bidding. Having heard all of Jesus' teaching, and we read it, uh, heard it by John being read there, all of Jesus' teaching on the upside-down kingdom, of what true greatness is, of how service is so much better than um, lording it over people, and all of this sort of thing, the very thing that they ask Jesus for is authority, is position, is power, is status. If I could borrow from Jamie and last week, status and authority, that is the nut that these disciples are unwilling to let go of. If that doesn't make any sense to you, check out Jamie's sermon on the podcast. Their request at this point in Mark's gospel should be absolutely gobsmacking to us. How can anybody be this close to Jesus to have seen how he lived his life, to have heard about how he was talking, about how he was going to be the Messiah, to have laid out time and time and time again what being a disciple truly looks like, and still be so far from the truth in their own hearts and their own minds. But we should be hesitant, I think, to cast stones, because I think actually James and John in all of these stories are a pretty good portrait of us a lot of the time. That this is how we view God. This is how we view Jesus. He's good, certainly. But really, we only love him or, or like him or consider him good, him good when he keeps all these various plates in our lives spinning. When he is satisfying in this area or that area or that area of our lives. 
God is only truly good in our eyes. Jesus is only really Lord when he answers all my prayers with yes and amen, no matter what they are. We're like James and John way too much of the time. Jesus is our magical butler whose sole purpose is to do our every bidding. James and John, I think they're a mirror held up to us. They've understood the power of God at work in Jesus, but in their heart of hearts, they only want that power to be exercised in satisfying their own cravings. How difficult it is for a disciple to truly grasp the upside-down kingdom, to truly grasp that Jesus doesn't have treasures to distribute, but is the treasure that we should be desiring. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So we move to the second scene. It's the scene I want us to spend more time on. What a contrast from beginning to end. We go from those who are physically, socially close to Jesus, and yet a million miles away in their thinking and in their hearts, to someone who seems like they couldn't be separated from Jesus anymore. And yet we see is so, so close to the kingdom. Here is Bartimaeus. And when we think about him, who is he? Isn't he the least of all that Jesus has been speaking about in the last couple of chapters? Jesus has repeatedly used that picture of children. But here is Bartimaeus, a grown man who has to beg at the side of the road. The sort of person that the crowd wants to shut up. That's familiar, isn't it? When people were bringing children to Jesus, the crowd, the disciples, pushed them away. Here's someone else who's getting pushed away from Jesus. We don't exactly know 100% crystal clear what is in their mind, but uh, some way, shape, or form, they see Bartimaeus as someone who simply doesn't have the value or the worth of wasting the master's time. And yet, fair play to Bartimaeus, He persists, doesn't he? He persists. The contrast between him, a beggar, and James and John, these beloved disciples, is evident from the word go. It's evident even before Jesus opens his mouth, isn't it? Think about their request, Lord, or actually they say teacher, quite an impersonal way of addressing Jesus. Teacher, do for us whatever we ask. But what is Bartimaeus crying out? Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I think that expression, son of David, is often lost on us. But here he's using this royal language. He's praising, he's worshipping, he's lifting up Jesus, even in crying out to him here. He's putting Jesus as the one who is going to be promised to come and to restore all things and to sit on the eternal throne. You might ask the question, well, how on earth has Bartimaeus come to that conclusion? Now, he's heard, yes, Jesus and a crowd, they're on their way through, they're on their way past. But how is it that this guy whose life consists of waking up in the morning, traveling out to his regular spot, begging until it goes dark and then going home. How on earth has he come to this magnificent conclusion that Jesus is the one, the fulfillment of so much of what was promised? Son of David, have mercy on me. My guess is he's heard people chirping, 
chatting on the road. He's heard snippets of the stories that we've been exploring in Mark's gospel. And he's put two and two together, and he's come to this wonderfully true conclusion that Jesus is the son of David. He is the Messiah. Now, the context of what's going on here in Bartimaeus, I think, is also important. We're reading about this big crowd leaving Jericho and making their way to Jerusalem. It's part of like annual pilgrimage off to the temple to worship together. And I want us to see how this moment, not just in the week, but in the year for Bartimaeus, was prime business time. Prime business time. An unusually high volume of people would have been walking past his spot. Not only that, it would have been a high volume of people feeling particularly pious. Think about it. When you're, put your Jewish mindset on, you're off to the temple to sacrifice, to worship, you're more likely to be generous and kind to the poor, aren't you? So for Bartimaeus, this is kind of like a week in his year where he's going to make 50% of all of his income. So the temptation must have been just to be good, to behave, to be sensible, and make sure that he filled up his cloak with coins enough to last him through the cold winter. But as he hears that Jesus is coming, this son of David who he's put together in his mind, he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd tell him to be quiet. Now he's got a choice there, isn't he? He's got a choice at this point whether he's going to persist in his crying out to Jesus and potentially annoy the crowd to such an extent that they will not give him any help. Or he'll simply go back to begging. Simply go back to collecting the money that he hopes these religious people will give to him. What does he do? Does he dutifully stop rocking the boat and go back to asking for arms? Of course he doesn't. He cries out, he bellows out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. It's not do whatever I ask. It's have mercy on me. A couple of weeks ago, in our rooted group, we were trying to unpack and trying to understand what Jesus meant when he spoke about coming and entering the kingdom of God like a child. In our group, we explored it and we basically came to the conclusion that it meant coming with nothing in our hands. Coming and just being empty. Coming in total and utter dependence. And here is Bartimaeus. And how is he coming? As one who needs mercy above anything else. Totally and utterly empty-handed. So Jesus hears the hullabaloo and he tells the crowd to bring Bartimaeus to him. And they now are enthusiastic. They've certainly changed their tune. Maybe they're enthusiastic because they think that they're about to witness another miracle. But again, it's not them. It's Bartimaeus who really does show us something wonderful. His actions really should catch our attention. If in calling for mercy... He exhibits that childlike dependence, that childlike faith that Jesus has been encouraging from his disciples. The fact that he throws his cloak aside and he sprints to Jesus shows us something of what Jesus expected from the rich young ruler last week. 
Now, Bartimaeus did not have anywhere near as much as that rich young ruler, but what he's doing is literally leaving his wealth behind. He's literally on the floor, in his cloak, leaving all the money that he's collected, all the money he's got, and going to Jesus. I don't think it's an accident that Mark has highlighted these teachings of Jesus and this story of Bartimaeus right at the conclusion of what really has been a big section on what it means to follow Jesus comes this wonderful example of how the disciples and how we should be responding. Can you see already how stark the difference is between this man and the men who came before? Can you see how stark the contrast is between how they viewed Jesus and how this blind man viewed Jesus? Then that comes that glorious question. Bartimaeus is at last face to face with the son of David that he's been calling out to. And Jesus asks him the exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? James, John, viewing Jesus as a magical butler. They sought to shortcut their lives to their deepest desires. How does Bartimaeus respond? How does his vision of Jesus shape what he asks for? He just asks the simple question, Lord, let me see. Though he was physically blind, he could see the truth about Jesus, the truth that has been there throughout Mark's gospel for us, that Jesus is the one who has come to put back together our broken lives. With Jesus in front of him, Bartimaeus now dared to dream that his broken life might be made whole again. There could be, with Jesus, a restoration of life as it was originally intended. I think Bartimaeus saw the truth that prophets like Isaiah had seen and understood centuries before. How this merciful Messiah was coming and would be the one through whom broken lives, the broken world that we live in, truly would be made right again. You can see that's how he views Jesus, isn't it? This is the one who's going to fix everything. And it spills out not just into his requests, but into his actions, because you, you have that wonderful line that even though Jesus tells him to go, Bartimaeus decides to follow to follow Jesus. Why does he follow him? Does he follow him because now he's got no need to go back to begging? Maybe. I think he follows him though because he's found in Jesus someone, something that is far more precious than valu- and valuable than anything else in his entire life. Scene three. Us. How do we view Jesus. Now it could literally be this morning one of those two pictures, couldn't it? It could be that you've come to church this morning and you do have this idea, this sense of Jesus that he is just someone who is powerful and there and willing and able to answer any of our requests when we click our fingers. Lord, I want a better job. Do it. Lord, I want a healthier life. Do it. Lord, I want so-and-so to stop annoying me as much. Do it. 
Lord, I want new neighbors. Do it. It could be that that is exactly how we view Jesus. It could be that we're exactly like Bartimaeus. Lord, I am sad about the world that I live in, and I want you to start putting it right. I want you to fix the sadness, the brokenness, the hunger, the pain, the hurt, the suffering, all of these things. It could be something else. But how we view him is so important because he does ask us that same question. What do you want from me today? Let me take just a moment to remind you of who Mark has been showing us Jesus to be. Jesus, according to Mark, is the one who is ushering in the kingdom of God, the, bro- uh, the broken world made right again. Jesus is the one who heals the sick, brings in the outcast, and forgives our sins. Jesus is the one who would do good despite the discomfort that it might cause others. Jesus is the one who confronts our hen- enemies head on and wins. Jesus is the one who makes clear everything which is confusing in this world and makes light everything that is dark. Jesus is the one who holds our lives in his very hands. Jesus is the one who frees us from our slavery and misery. He's the one who cares about the same things that we care about. He's the one who is able and willing to provide for us. He is the one who is rejected. Jesus is the one who has been there since the beginning, the one who calls us to follow him, the one who will suffer in our place, the one who will rise again, and the one who is worth so much more than anything that we would hold on to in our lives. I mean, that's just a snippet, really, of who Jesus is. And the question is, do we see him? Or how do we see him? Anything close to the Jesus that Mark has been speaking to us about for the last three months? It's so important for us to see and to understand him because that will play a massive part in how we answer this question. What do you want me to do for you today? Those inviting words are not reserved for the inner circle. We've seen that. James and John and Bartimaeus, they're they're offered the same question. What do you want me to do for you today? And they're words that are still offered to us in Llanderbier Memorial Hall even this morning. Now, I think there are lots of genuinely good answers we can give to that question. Some are better than others. But how we answer shows not only how we view Jesus, but what is valuable in our life. I could stand here and tell you that, well, it's all about forgiveness, isn't it? That Jesus is the one who has come for us to be forgiven. So really, the one thing that you need to ask him for is forgiveness. I could stand here and I could say it's all about acceptance. Jesus is the one who has come to make it so that you're not a foreigner and a stranger, but you're a child in the family of God. So what you need to ask for is acceptance. could stand up here and tell you that it's all about purpose. That Jesus is the one who comes to open our eyes to a bigger world, a bigger life. And and all of a sudden there is this sense of purpose and point to everything that didn't exist before. And what you should really be asking for is purpose. I could say that it's all about hope or peace or freedom or assurance. And the reason I can say that is because it is all of these things. Too often we reduce Jesus down to one idea 
Too often we reduce Jesus down to achieving one thing on our behalf. But the truth is, he is all of these things and more. Truly, Jesus is the one who, without trying to trick us, asks us what we need. What we want him to do for us. And this morning, I'm suggesting that any of these things is a tremendous answer for you to give. And I'm absolutely certain that Jesus is able to answer these things because, well, because earlier on in the passage, this is what he was speaking about. On their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, as I'm speaking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I began with that idea of depending on who asks you the question as giving a different answer. Imagine, if you will, you received a phone call from the multi-millionaire Richard Branson. And Richard Branson said to you down the phone, what do you want for your birthday? My guess is it wouldn't be the same thing that you'd ask the parents for, you know, the top end of your um, gift basket. It would be something that you never would have imagined asking anybody else for. Richard, quite like my own private island, please. Because you know that he has the means to give it. When Jesus asks us, what do you want? We need to be able to see him, to know him, to understand him, and certainly not to underestimate him. He is so utterly able to say yes because he has already done what is necessary for us who are broken to be made whole again. He's in the business of taking broken things and making them new. That is what he does. That's what his kingdom is all about. And that's what Mark has been pushing on us relentlessly, chapter after chapter after chapter. We've got laid before us this morning, the communion, which is a picture or a play um, about Jesus who himself was broken so that we could be remade, put perfectly back together as we need to be. It reminds us, the bread is body, the drink is blood. It reminds us that he lived in our broken world that he suffered in his body, that he died, that he shed his blood on our behalf, that he faced down the punishments that we deserve, that he disarmed the fear of death because he rose again. So when Jesus, who is now risen to eternal life and ascended, asks you, and he asks me, what do we want? We can have confidence that he can answer. So let me encourage you this morning, do not go small. Do not go small with the answer that you give. I think James and John, they went small with their answer. 
If your answer is anything in the lines of riches or authority or status or even some fantastic experience, you are going too small in answering Jesus' question. I want to challenge you this morning to go big. When Jesus asks you, as he does, what do you want me to do for you? Go big. And take the communion this morning. It's going to go around as a reminder that Jesus would go and give his life as a ransom for us. That he would go and be broken so that we could become whole. That he would go outside so that we could be welcomed him. That he would go and die so that we could find life. He would empty himself of all his heavenly riches so that we could be filled up and become rich in him. So take this bread, take this wine, and as you're taking it, answer that question this morning. As Jesus asks it, what do you want me to do for you? But don't you dare go small. Go big. Bring to mind those things that Mark has shown us about Jesus. And come to him with confidence that he is the merciful son of David. I'm going to pray. And then Ems and Rods will help us pass them out. Lord, help us to see this morning as Bartimaeus saw. The true Jesus Christ. The one who is bigger than our pathetic worldly desires, our desperation for authority, our desperation for recognition, our desperation even for comfort for a time. Help us to see as Bartimaeus saw the one who has come to put all things right, all things back in place. As we take this bread, as we take this wine, help us to answer that question, Lord. In whatever way it needs to be answered, but help us to answer with big things because we trust that Jesus is big enough to answer them. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.